Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, our topic is the making of a psychic healing facilitator. My guest is Dr. Joyce Hawks. She is the author of Cell Level Healing from Soul to Cell, as well as Resonance, Nine Practices for Health and Vitality. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. And I really appreciate your making the journey from Seattle to Albuquerque. Yes, indeed. Down to the sunshine. Wow. <laughs> this is the sunshine state or the sunshine region. Very much. Wow. For, for sure. Well, you began your career not as a healing facilitator at all. You were a research scientist. I was indeed. I... Uh was just an ordinary kid in school, and then in high school, a teacher said to me, you know, if you worked a little harder, you'd be in honors classes. And I went, really? Oh, my goodness. And then I had a wonderful biology teacher who said, wow, you really like biology. And I, well, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And so then I went to college, and I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. And at the end of college, the head professor in zoology said, how about graduate school? I went, what's that? (laughs) So the doors opened in unusual ways, Mm -hmm. and I eventually wound up clear across the country. I grew up in Oregon at Penn State, and I did a doctorate in biophysics, and I fell in love with an electron microscope. This huge machine that weighs a ton and works under 100,000 volts of electricity, beaming those electrons through a sample revealed, unveiled, the secrets inside of cells. And I was ecstatic about seeing it. It was in a room that was dark, and you'd twiddle the knobs, and it was just fabulous. Mm -hmm. And so... After that, then I accepted a postdoctoral fellowship with National Institutes of Health at a primate center in Beaverton, Oregon. Primate center, but I worked on fish. Mm-hmm. Pigment was the theme and uh, was there for three years working with electron microscopy again and looking at high-speed laser effects on pigment and on the cells that carry pigment. It was amazing work, and for that, I was um, honored and elected as a fellow in the American Association for Advancement of Science. So one thing after another unfolded with the passion for the work. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And then National Marine Fisheries in Seattle offered me a job. I'd been working with fish from there. So then they gave me quite a little stack of money to buy Two electron microscopes, a scanning microscope that looks at surfaces Mm -hmm. and a transmission electron microscope that looks inside of cells when they're prepared and sectioned and all that. And uh, 
had a group working for me, and we had resources from the lab and chemistry, and it was a wonderful place. Had a joint appointment at University of Washington in the Department of Zoology. But our main work was on the effects of pollutants at very low levels, parts per billion, four or five parts per billion petroleum hydrocarbons, and their effects on baby fish. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered is that certain parts of the cell, the part that supplies all of the power of the cell, the mitochondria, were affected first during the um, introduction of these pollutants. And without those mitochondria, eventually the whole single cell and then other cells, and eventually the whole little baby fish would die. Mm You're talking, I think, about salmon, aren't you? We're talking about salmon. You're right. Exactly. Worked on coho salmon and Chinook salmon that were grown in the lab. Mm -hmm. And that publication um, came out, and uh, National Marine Fisheries sent me to Anchorage, Alaska, to a large meeting about whether (laughs) oil drilling would be allowed on the Aleutian chain. And what's true that I didn't know before I got there is that the highest level of biomass in the water on the earth is in that cold, cold water of the Aleutian chain. Which that's kind of surprising. One would expect more biomass in the tropical waters. You would think so. But this is plankton, little Uh organisms that are more very microscopic and tiny baby fish. And that's why the whales like it up there, I guess. (laughs) So... Part of that research was so clear on the damaging effects of parts per billion, again, of petroleum hydrocarbons, that it prevented oil drilling mm-hmm. uh, on the Aleutian chain, which is... So your st- research was really instrumental. The research showed the data, it showed the facts, mm-hmm. and appeared to be very instrumental in making that choice. Now, during this period of your life when you were doing all this research, I presume that was probably well over a decade. Yes, yes. Uh, what was your attitude towards psychic and spiritual matters? Were, were you, like many scientists, uh, basically a materialist at that time? Profoundly materialist. Mm-hmm. I was not interested in psychic things or spiritual things. I, I had had religious experiences as a kid. Those were gone. And... I was focused Mm -hmm. intently, and I worked many, many more hours than 40 per week (laughs) to do the research I was doing, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I just believed that everything was about atoms and molecules and cells and these wonderful structures inside of cells and how they worked, and that my passion, if not my job, was showing the pictures of how they work and working with others who could show the biochemistry of how they worked so that we knew more at that very deep level about the structure and function uh, in cells that hadn't been actually seen or worked with before. Mm. There wasn't much work on fish. And actually, it took a year in the postdoctoral work to get the process of producing fixation, embedding, sectioning, so that the cells didn't just 
dissolve into a mass of nothing Mm -hmm. to actually be able to fix it well because it was different than how you fix mouse tissue, for example. So that was what I was busy with. Well, I I know since I was a child myself, I've loved looking at photos from the electron Uh, microscopes. Oh, cool. You get magnifications at like, what, 100,000 times? Yes, anywhere with a scanning microscope from... Four or five thousand to twenty thousand, and mm. then with the transmission microscope, oh, forty, fifty thousand, up to a million magnifications. If you're looking at viruses, mm-hmm. much much of our work at the level that we needed was uh, just under a hundred thousand magnification. So. 60, 70, 80,000. Mm-hmm. But that's amazing. Wow, one little thing blown up that much. Mm-hmm. That's astonishing. And, of course, that required you to have expertise not only in biology, but also in all the mechanics involved yes. in the electron microscope. Oh, that is so true. Because the electron microscope works under incredibly, what you would call high or low, depending how you use the word, um, uh, lack of oxygen <clears throat> vacuum it and so there is a roughing pump that starts that you have to keep that thing working well and there's an oil diffusion pump that takes every atom of oxygen out of there if you leave any air in the column of the electron microscope it deflects electrons so it doesn't get to your sample and it all looks like a mess mm-hmm. and if any part of the electron microscope got funky and wasn't working it was one of those aspects of making the vacuum. And I actually, my daddy was a mechanic and I grew up playing with (laughs) tools in his um, auto shop. Mm. And so I wasn't afraid Mm -hmm. of, if I knew where things were and what to do with them, I didn't mess with it otherwise to wreck it. But I could tweak stuff in the electron microscope before a service person could show up and still keep the thing working. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you were the director of the laboratory at that point. I was. Point. Yeah. And, but at some point now, things began to change for you. You had uh, what might be called a near-death experience uh, or a mystical experience, depending on how you want to <clears> look <throat> at it. Yeah. Boy, I was alone and living in a little place near Green Lake. Uh, in Seattle, and decided I needed to clean house one Friday afternoon after working in the lab all week. And so I was vacuuming, and I had a wonderful fireplace and a mantle, and a huge leaded glass window set in an oak frame, about three feet long and a good 15 inches. I didn't bump the mantle. I know I didn't. I was in front vacuuming. And all of a sudden, this leaded glass window vaults off and hits me on the head. I remember seeing it and crouching as it came down, and I still remember the impact. Now, I'd never heard of near-death experiences or these transformative mystical experiences. Um, This was in the year 1976. And all of a sudden, my personal experience is being in a long, dark tunnel, dark walls on either side and way down there at the end is a bright light and I'm drawn to it and I'm moving toward it not at a super fast speed but not slow and I'm not afraid 
It's all new, but I'm not scared, which still surprises me when I look back on this. Now, my mama and grandma had died. My mother died when I was 25 from an embolism, and I missed her terribly. It was, I was very close to my family and um, raised wonderfully and blessed. And I thought at that point in my life they were dust. There was no afterlife, period. And here at the entrance to the light, mother and grandmother are greeting me, expressing their love to me. It's easy to recognize them. They don't look like they did <laughs> in the coffin. They don't, they didn't, they were healthy, beautiful, youngish looking, but recognizable. And we could exchange this sense of connection and love. It was like, wow. And then, boom, all of a sudden, I'm through the entrance, which is just a big curve, into a gorgeous place of light. But there's rolling hills and green grass and flowers and a blue, blue sky. Like It's like the sky at the in the high mountains um, late in the afternoon. Just exquisite. I had no agenda. And I usually had always an agenda going in my mind. I was always planning the next experiment, the next manuscript, the next whatever. And so I'm just there. Nothing else, no other person or being. I'm just walking around going, wow. Boom! All of a sudden, I'm transported up some stairs to a beautiful white room full of gorgeous white, kind of sparkly light, not harsh in any way. And at the end of the room is a being of light, very large. And I was like, wow. And the, the sort of inner conversation in this room was, everything is known, don't bother trying to keep secrets. I didn't have a specific life review, but I had this sense everything is known and there was no judgment. I went, wow, okay. I, I haven't been good all my life, but wow, okay. And then this sense of belonging and knowing, like everything is known and belonging to love, to God, if you want to call it that, to everything. It was astonishing. And the word love just doesn't fully carry the experience of that profound sense of both being known, blessed, and um, English doesn't get there. I don't know if any language does, but Mm -hmm. I hope I can transmit that. So I had no discussion about coming back or not, as many people do, who've had these experiences just Boom, all of a sudden, I was back on the floor in my little house, and my head hurt a lot. And I put my hand up to my head, and I had a huge mat of dried, coagulated blood. So I wasn't out just a few seconds. I was out quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And I've been told by doctors that if you're out that long, you're pretty much dead. I have no clinical proof of being totally dead. So this is truly an amazing psychic, transformative, mystical experience, having um, visions, experience, feelings that I'd never had in my life. And the scientist part of me actually said, oh, well, that was some kind of weird dream. You forget it. 
go back to the lab. And that was on a Friday night. I didn't go to a doctor. On Monday morning, I'm walking down the hall in the lab, and one of my colleagues sees me and says, What happened to you? You look awful. Come on. Let's go to my car. I'm, I'm taking you to my doctor. So I actually went to a doctor, mm-hmm. and they did a scan, and I had some blood on the brain, not bad enough to have to be removed surgically or whatever, but I had to take six weeks off. Mm-hmm. Now, I was a skier and a mountain climber, been on top of Mount Hood and Mount Adams, and I was actually on the ski patrol and teaching skiing and running three miles a day around Green Lake in less than 20 minutes. I was very fit. I couldn't do any of those things because my head hurt too much. I loved music, but the bass tones in music made my head hurt. I loved reading, but even leaning over in any way to read made my head hurt. So I had to put up with myself for six weeks. It was horrible. Mm. It was like, who are you, Joyce? Anyway, and in that process, I couldn't discount the experience I had, partially because I had no knowledge of it ahead of time. It was completely unexpected. I'd never heard of this stuff. And the emotions were so strong and intense. The experience was so profound and intense that I couldn't discount it. Many people say it's more real than real. Yes. I hadn't actually heard that. And that is that really puts it there. Mm -hmm. So near the end of the six weeks when I was feeling better, I decide I'll go to my favorite bookstore, um, down downtown in Seattle, and I'm just walking around the store going, oh, is there a book I want to read? And I swear, this book just kind of fell off the shelf. And it was Ray Moody's first book, his first study of the near-death experience called Life After Life. Mm. And I stood there in the bookstore and virtually read the whole thing, and he has case histories. And I went, Oh my gosh, this isn't exactly like what happened to me, but it's similar. And so one of the things I'd said in the lab to the people working in my lab for years was, if it's real, it's repeatable. Let's do that experiment again. Make sure our data is correct. (laughs) So I'm going, "Uh oh, you have to listen to your own words here. Here's repeated evidence of the, the psychic world, the spiritual world, the expansion of consciousness. I love the word now, expanded consciousness, because that's really a bit of the way it feels. Like this level of consciousness can go into a state much larger and encompass more than our material world. That was uh, an amazing time for me. And then I started seeking out others who had experiences. I found the International Near-Death Studies Group in Seattle, which was very helpful, very welcoming, and read everything I could read. And then I started being interested in healing, like what's beyond what the medical group can do. I really honor the the physicians and nurses and people doing that and the research in that field. But but there's another dimension here, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And so I found a healer in Seattle, 
and started taking classes and doing work. And I would put my hands over the top of somebody, not touching them. They go, wow, I can feel things moving around. I'm going, really? And so the feedback was beginning to be fascinating. I was interested in it, but I had no desire to leave the lab Mm -hmm. for many reasons. I loved the work, and I also had a good salary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So seven years after the near-death experience, I'd gone with this healer and two other uh, fellows down to Mount Shasta. We had climbed up to a little valley at 9,600 feet in the snow and spent a night there in our tents. It was an amazing mm-hmm. experience at Shasta. It was just such a powerful place. We were talking earlier, and I mentioned I did very much the same thing, climbing up the south slope and camping right at yeah. that level. I went on up to the summit. And but you summited. It's, a- it, you know, there are so many <clears throat> myths about Mount Shasta. It, yes. People, uh, for good reason, call it a mystical mountain. Truly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've had several trips there that that in many ways changed my life. There mm-hmm. were other depths of uh, experience yeah. uh, that was like, yeah, mystical is so right. But on the way back, we stopped in Portland, Oregon, at a shrine out on 82nd and Gleason Street <laughs> called uh, the Grotto. Mm-hmm. And it's a Catholic shrine dedicated to Mother Mary, the Blessed Mother. You were raised Catholic? No, I wasn't raised Uh Catholic. I was early raised uh, Presbyterian, Mm -hmm. Protestant. And and so I'm sitting there at a little prayer place in front of this huge uh, natural um, cave. And inside... Is a replica of Mother Mary holding Jesus' body, and there's candles all around. No one else around. And I'm just, oh, it just felt so peaceful and blessed to be there. All of a sudden, I hear in my ear, in my head, I hear a woman's voice say, you are called to heal. And I went, whoa. It, It still gets me when I say it now. The intensity of that energy was ever bit as powerful as the near-death experience, any other mystical transformative experiences I've had. You know, and I'd been thinking about, you know, where is my life going from here? And so when we returned to Seattle the next business day, I resigned my position at the lab. You, you resigned the position that you loved and paid you very well. Yes. With, with the idea that you're going to follow the inspiration of, of that voice that said you are destined or you're supposed to be a healer. Yeah. So I started by just setting up the basement of my home, um, with a little altar and place where people could come. Um, and people started showing up. And my prayer initially, and all these years, has been, may the people I can actually help be the ones I connect with. And so I've never really advertised or whatever. I haven't. I thought of starting a school at one time, but it wasn't my calling. And so I do teaching now and and workshops. And and you've been basically yeah. 
functioning full-time as what you call a healing facilitator ever since. So it's been now, you know, more than three decades uh-huh. doing this work. Okay. And I had an opportunity to go to the Philippines because mm-hmm. a friend had been there and said, oh, there's all kinds of healers here. And I went, oh, really? So, so in other words, between 1976, when, yes. when you had that, we'll call it a near-death experience. Whatever, yes. And... 1984. So it was a seven-year period. Seven years, yes. But I, now I happen to know that you, at some point, you began to study theology. Yes. And when did that occur? That was in the late 80s, mm-hmm. after I'd been to the Philippines. Yes. And really immersed there in Catholicism because that's where that it's country a is. Country, yes. And the healer I worked with was very Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I, um, was required to go to mass every day, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. It was it was peaceful and truly blessed. And this little parish up in Baguio, mm-hmm. way up in the mountains of the Philippines, invited me to <clears throat> take the the body and the blood, the wafer and the wine there with them, and I was really honored by that. So, now, Baguio in the Philippines is known for being a center of the psychic surgeons. Is that what you, who you were working with? Well, thank you. It's a very interesting question, because what I wanted, the scientist part of my brain still working, is I wanted to see those psychic surgeons and know if any of them were real, because mm-hmm. I'd heard that <clears throat> people had tested some of the blood and the stuff that they had supposedly taken out, mm. and the red blood cells had nuclei in them, which means they weren't human, they were from... Chickens. Chickens, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I went, ah, okay. So I'm up there just kind of trying to explore, is there a healer I can work with? Uh, where are the psychic surgeons? And then all of a sudden, where I was staying, and I, there was a surgeon an honest-to-God surgeon from the University of Washington and his new bride and a friend of mine. There were four of us together. So we were kind of like, is there somebody we can meet who's a real healer? And So the head of the little hotel where I was staying said, by the way, there's this healer. You can go meet him downtown. He and his wife run a little shoe store. <laughs> and so I walked in, and here comes Roberto Pidal toward me with his hands up, and I practically collapse, and my friend, who has vision, said there was beams of light going between our hands. And it was like, wow, here is a teacher. And he was a profound healer, but not a psychic surgeon. And the reason he wasn't a psychic surgeon is because he fainted at the sight of blood. That <laughs> always just tickled me. But from the age of five, he'd been recognized as gifted uh, with healing. Hmm. His grandfather had been ill, and a little kid goes over, puts his hand on his grandpa, and suddenly his grandpa is fine. And so it was amazing. Then I started, he invited me to come and work with him. So I started working with him every day for, oh goodness, eight hours. And people from all over the Philippines would come and just kind of camp in this basement and bring food for his family and it was an incredible experience. And they spoke Tagalog, which I'm, you know, I had to pass German and Russian for my doctorate, but languages are not my deal. I can mm-hmm. speak English, but whoa. So 
I learned four or five words in Tagalog, but I wasn't picking it up very well. And they would be talking Tagalog, and his nickname was Choi. And uh, he'd turn to me and say, what's wrong with this person? And I'm going, whoa, I don't know. I, 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 and then he said, you know, do your thing, go deep, so you can read what's wrong with them. And then he'd say, what's wrong? And I went, oh, okay, this is what I see, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you're wrong. You're stupid. This is wrong. Do it again. And I go, no, that is what I see. It's just what I said. And he'd take me through that maybe three or four times and then say, yeah, you're right. (laughs) And so I had to learn to stick with what I actually was getting. Mm -hmm. And it opened the doors of being able to read, of getting information. And when I teach this work, one of the things I say is, to be very deep in a meditative state, to be connected with source, and then allow information to come. And learning a feeling, it's its kind of like intuition, but it's a feeling when you know it's accurate. Mm. Because there are times when someone presents themselves for healing where they don't have a diagnosis. My doctor can't find anything, but I'm still feeling terrible. Or somebody comes for one kind of work and you actually go, oh, goodness gracious, there's something else going on in the body. As a team member, I would say, then go see your doctor. And those have turned out to be accurate. Mm -hmm. So the Philippines was, I was there for four months. And it was an incredible experience of Mm -hmm. learning their style and and being challenged um, and... And working. Uh, you also worked intensively, I understand, with a healer in Bali. Yes. For an even lengthier time. Yeah. So some years after that, uh, again, a friend went to Bali and said, Joyce, there's healers in Bali. You need to go. And so a friend and I went over for six weeks. And again, I'm just wandering around going, where are they? How do I find somebody that's authentic? Where is it? And Bingo, I'm, I actually, oh, funny experiences. I mean, strange little, little open door here, little, little, little connection here and there. All of a sudden, I meet a translator and guide, Iwayan Budiasa, who's still doing guiding in Bali. And he takes me to a healer and I meet her. And that's very interesting. And then that door closes and he takes me to another one and walking down this little trail with a ditch on the other side to her little family compound, and she's coming toward me. It was another one of those experiences where I practically fell in the ditch. The energy coming from her was so strong. And so I met her, and through the translator we talked. <laughs> There's five dialects in Bali, and then and some Indonesian, and a lot of people speak English also. But the the priests and healers speak a very special dialect, so I always needed a translator. Anyway, as I met her and experienced her energy, she had this little room where she did her stuff, which was very powerful. What I said to her was, I really appreciate the rituals in your culture, but I can't translate those to my culture. Can we go deep underneath the rituals to the basis of how you work. 
and and be there? And she said, yes. And so she invited me to come back. And I went back and forth from Seattle to Bali two or three times a year for 10 years. And what she would do is set up a little schedule when I get there, and I needed to be there three weeks minimum, where this sarong, this temple scarf, and this color temple top, and show up with a booty at such and such a time. And then I never knew where we were going to go. I went on many of these trips alone. I look back on that and I go, you sure trusted a lot, didn't you, girl? <laughs> now, you said show up with booty? Booty is the name of the guide. Oh, yeah, the guide. Yeah, E-Y-N Booty Awesome. Ah, booty, oh, oh, sorry. okay. <laughs> oh, not, yeah, B-O-O-T-Y. Gotcha. <laughs> no, she really didn't charge. I did gift her, but uh-huh. she was not um, into that. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. I was the first uh, Western student she'd ever taken. Mm-hmm. But what we would do is go to a temple, and some of the temples were half a day's drive away, and she would speak to the head priest of the temple and then take me into the sanctum sanctorum to the Holy of Holies and sit me down on the hot sand, trance dance around me, and slug me. Now, if somebody just walked up right now and slugged me, I'd, what? But it didn't bother me. I didn't make me angry. Hmm. And what happened is she pushed me into that expanded state of consciousness. And I would see things that I never anticipated. Like we were at Basaki, which is the mother temple. I had no idea this temple was dedicated to Shiva. I didn't even know who Shiva was at that point. Mm -hmm. And neither did I know that the bull was the vehicle for Shiva. That's how Shiva comes to the earth. So I'm up there at Basaki. She whacks me All of a sudden, I see a bull's skull, and I'm drawn out of body, psychically, through the orbit of the eye, out into outer space, and I see galaxies spinning, stars, and all these things out there. It was an amazing, joyful, again, expansive experience. And then, boom, I'd come back. It was like, wow. Amazing. When I would come back to Seattle and see clients in my practice, I could notice how much deeper I could go with the healing work, how much more information I could get of what was needed by this person. And then people would call up for sessions that I knew before that trip to Bali I never could have helped. And so each of those trips in all those 10 years kept expanding Mm -hmm. the work. And finally, the end of the 10 years, which was year 2000, she took me to another special temple and she said, you are finished, you are a healer, or their word is Balian, Balian by our standards. And I must say, I don't say that much or advertise it, but it's as important to me as my doctorate. <laughs> I mean, it took 10 yeah. years to get uh-huh. this. I am under the impression that at each temple that she took you to, 
the energies are a little different, the deities may be a little different, and that what you were learning was to sort of uh, be sensitive to the particular spiritual energies that were uh, gathered at each of those locations. Exactly. Mm-hmm. One temple in particular she took me to was not one that public went to. And I couldn't take any pictures. In fact, Booty was instructed to take my camera. It was the days when there was film in camera. And he removed the film from the camera when I got to it afterwards. Mm. But she asked the deity of that temple, and there were no priests, nobody else there, if we could come in. And we did. And inside the temple was this huge pool of water. It was as long as a football field. And there was a little isthmus that went out. And she took me out and sat me down. And then she went out on the end of it. And it was out maybe, oh, 15 feet. And she sat me down and I looked down. She sat me a foot away from red ant hill. Now, red ants bite. They're nasty. And I'm going, ah! Okay, pay attention to... Jiro Manku was her name, and get over being scared of those red ants. <clears throat> Not a one crawled on me or bit me. That was a miracle in itself. I mean, here's some juicy person to chew on, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she's out there at the end doing this work, and um, it was amazing. And at, at one point, I lost my body completely. I became a blue dot. And... I found out later in Hindu philosophy that the blue dot is the essence of who we are in their way they see it. And there was nothing else. I, I couldn't, I could speak, but I couldn't move. And so I had truly amazing experiences I had no preparation for. And therefore I didn't judge them. I went, Oh, okay. This is what it's about. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful for those years and all those wonderful temples. And you also made a point of studying theology. Yes. Then I got an inner calling. It was a calling to um, know more about Christian theology. So I did a master's in ministry at Seattle University, which is Jesuit, and very much appreciated the brilliance of the Jesuits and all the things that I read and studied. And then I actually served a First Baptist Church which was part of the requirements for the degree uh, to serve in some church function. Mm. Um, and this was a Baptist church. Uh, so I served there for four years, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, while I was still doing my private practice. And, and did you also <laughs> engage in uh, studies of Hindu or other Asian traditions? Yes. So part of the calling, again, the nudges inside, and the doors that would open were the 10 years in Hinduism in Bali, um, Judaism also. And uh, I've studied with a Muslim now, with a uh, Sufi, for almost 10 years. I have been a member of a Tibetan Buddhist um, Zojin lineage uh, group for well over a dozen years and studied deeply there. And I have a cabin in the mountains, so part of that connection is earth also. Mm-hmm. Because many times when I ask clients, 
What's your spiritual tradition? And the reason I've studied all of these is so that the energy scent is in their own tradition. I'm not trying to impose Mm -hmm. on them in any way. And many people say, well, I grew up this, I grew up that, but I don't have anything now. I really like trees and, and rivers or the ocean. And so I spend a lot of time with huge old trees. There are some areas up on Mount Baker that have never been logged. And the Nooksack River is very close to my cabin. It runs right off a glacier on the mountain. And so having that deep feeling of the blessing of the earth along with all of these other traditions. Mm-hmm. I'm also part Native American, I discovered at some point, and um, have done some work with shamanism. Um, I'm not a shaman uh, and have not, am not extensive in this field. But there's an aspect of the depth of, um, like with Gerald, going beyond the material world in a real deep place that speaks, is spoken of by shamans also mm-hmm. from all over the world that supplies the work. So there's information from all these traditions about how we can help one another. And it's been amazing too uncover that. Mm-hmm. So in your own healing work, you've <clears throat> managed to synthesize all of these various inputs, all the way from cellular biology <laughs> to uh, <laughs> out-of-body experiences inside of uh, remote Hindu temples on the island of Bali. Yeah, that's kind of a lot of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It is indeed. But now, you, and so you've been practicing, basically working as a healing facilitator pretty much full-time now since... Oh, full-time. 1983. Four. 84. 84. 84. Exactly. Uh-huh. Full-time. Yeah. So, And that's quite a transition. Just one day, quit a, a very good job that you had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was worried when I quit that job. I had money saved, and I had a year's pay coming to me. So I worked simply by um, donation. Mm-hmm. But I was worried, how am I going to pay the rent, and how am I going to put food on the table, and and help my daughter go to college, and da 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 all that stuff. And the message that came was, relax and allow your needs to be met. And so every time I'd get fussy and worried about it, it was allow. And so the word allow has become a a journey, a path for me. Mm -hmm. And even when things get really tight, all of a sudden something happens I didn't expect, and there's enough money to pay the rent, put the food on the table. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not rich, but I am, I'm, I'm comfortable. And I, I'm so grateful for that. And in many ways, I must say, it still surprises me. Mm. Well, Dr. Joyce Hawks, what a wonderful journey you've been on. I really appreciate Thank your you. willingness to listen to those inner promptings and, and those voices and to change your life so dramatically. Thank you. I'm just delighted to have had this conversation with you. And I'm even more excited because you're here in Albuquerque and we're going to have several more. Yay! (laughs) It's a delight. So thank you very much for being with me. You're very welcome. And thank you for being with us.
Thank you.